Well, good morning again, Christian Lehman. I have the honor of introducing our speaker for this morning. He is the lead pastor of Regeneration Church in Oakland, um, and his name is Pastor Albert Lee. And uh, guess what we're doing this summer, as, as Stephen said? We're going, um, actually, we're going to Regeneration, and we're going to throw an ice cream for several days, and it's a really cool event because our whole church kind of like gets to go on a missions trip, and, and so we're going to be partnering with other churches, including Regen, and they're going to be hosting the ice creaming. So this is really good partnership, and so Pastor Albert is here just to preach the Word of God. Um, Pastor Albert, his wife's name is Katie, and um, you know they say that pastors have a lot of kids, and he's got more than I have. Not that it's a contest, but he's got four kids, four beautiful kids, and they go to the same school as um, our kids do, um, which is at Yuming. And he just told me that they also have a new addition to the family. Don't get too excited yet. They have a new dog, okay? And it's a big one, too. It's a, it's a new Finland, right? All you need to know about that is it's one big dog, Okay. So, um, and that's, that's coming to their family soon. Let's give a, a warm uh, welcome to Albert, who loves to preach the Word of God. Let's give him a warm welcome um, to Albert. I have my Newfoundland yet. Um, it's uh, being weaned from its mother. So I still have another two weeks before we go pick this dog up. But he is eight weeks, and he's 22 pounds. Um, so... Uh, his dad is 160, and he's two years old, so he's not fully grown yet. Um, so that's pretty awesome. Uh, if, if you don't know about Newfoundlands, they were bred to pull in fishing nets in Canada. So just, it's like a horse. So it's, it's kind of cool. Um, I'm really honored to be here. Uh, I've, I've known Andrew for a long time, and he hasn't invited me all these years, and I don't know why. Uh, it's just very very mean of him. Um, but I, I'm really looking forward to just opening the Word of God with all of you. And so if you uh, have a Bible in front of you and you want to turn to Nehemiah chapter 8, we're going to look through verses 1 through 12 this morning. Um, I was given this uh, theme of community-ology, which is a new word I just learned. Um, but in, it's interesting because in this eighth chapter of Nehemiah, uh, it's actually not talking about Nehemiah at all. We're, we're going to meet a new guy in this book. His name's Ezra. And he gives this beautiful public declaration to the people of Jerusalem. Now, what does Ezra's public declaration have to do with community? Well, it helps us as a church community understand why we give such high regard and such great importance to the public reading, teaching, preaching of the Word of God. And Nehemiah Eight informs us about why we believe the Bible to be foundational and central to the church. One of the controversies about the Bible is its claims on truth to a society that is actually intolerant towards absolute truth. And there's a significant pushback in our culture toward any teaching that makes such a claim. These claims of truth they cause a great skepticism, and it causes people who are generally tolerant to then become intolerant. Because how can anyone 
speak with authority out of a book especially as old and antiquated as the Bible. Aren't we just part of this religious brainwashing to believe such things? Which is a thought that has influenced many clergy to then move away from the preaching and teaching of the Bible. But when we move away from the Bible, we remove the focus from the Word of God and then onto ourselves. Then people start focusing on someone's opinions rather than focusing on God's Word. So then it's no wonder people need to bring in other materials other than the Bible to their messages. And so you'll see in a lot of other places, they, they bring in poetry or they bring in paintings or they bring in all sorts of things which actually can be helpful but it's simply not the Bible. And there's more of a focus on the entertainment value of a message rather than the simplicity of sharing God's word, which is why we're focusing just on these 12 verses in chapter 8, because the desire is for us to hear from God directly, for the Spirit to speak to us. The focus for us as a Christ-following community is to be the Scriptures, which is why the sermon is just kept really simple. We can have a lot of multimedia and all sorts of things going on. We have the equipment to do this. But let's not distract from the simplicity of God's Word this morning. We're just going to go to that. And when you leave here, hopefully the comments about the church community aren't going to be about a particular person, about how that person performed, but that you receive the Word of God, and hopefully the the attitude from people who come here isn't just to sit back, relax, and enjoy this show, that you're actually involved, that hopefully we're actively engaged, expectant to hear from God directly, to increase our awareness, our attentiveness, our sensitivity to what the Holy Spirit is communicating directly to us, that it's a time for us to encounter God an opportunity for us to respond to what he may be calling us to. And when our time together is over, I hope we are filled with joy, peace, hope to deal with the realities of our life, whatever that may be, that we can deal with those things. Because all of us have a reality to deal with. And we need God to show up. Some of the things that you guys are dealing with the loss of loved ones, struggling marriages, rebellious children who are far from God, addictions, health issues, things at work, things in your church where you are going to need God to show up at this time because it's not going to be fun without him because it surely isn't fun even with him. Now, Nehemiah 8 starts much like what is happening here. It's it's a gathering, Nehemiah 8, the first part of verse 1. And all the people gathered as one, gathered as one man into the square before the water gate. So they gather into the square. It's the center of community life there. It was a very public place for everyone to gather and to listen to what was important to the community, for everyone to know this message. Now it's estimated at this time that there were about uh, 50,000 people that were in Jerusalem at this time, and they gathered together as one, united in purpose and commitment to build up their city, gathered as one. They weren't looking at 50,000 individual experiences. 
They brought their purpose, their commitment, their resources all together, and it wasn't about what they could receive individually, but how they could contribute to community, towards oneness. For the church to have unity, oneness, we do need to come together in purpose, in commitment, and in resources. Only God can bring us together like this because we are so different. Now, there's a richness in our differences, and even though we are all different in so many ways, we are one in Christ. Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 10, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you may be united in the same mind and same judgment. Now, we all know that we don't agree on everything. That's probably the only thing we agree on, is that we don't agree. But there are some things that we need to be united on. That at the core of who we are as followers of Jesus, there are essentials to our oneness. Things such as the preeminence of Jesus Christ, the importance of prayer, the authority of the Word of God, the significant need for evangelism and discipleship, the centrality of worship. These are shared essentials that are needed as we gather as one, and we need to consistently pray for this unity. Continuing on in verse 1, And they told Ezra, the scribe, to bring the book of the law of Moses that the Lord had commanded Israel. So you notice this, that they wanted to hear from God. That's why they brought this. They didn't ask to hear from Ezra, but from the book of the law. The, the revitalization of this community, the strength of this community, was going to happen with the Word of God as its foundation. So you see why, why we need to have a commitment to God's Word. And it's so sad to see churches stray away from the Word of God with a heavier emphasis towards other things. Entertainment, music, parenting workshops, life coaching, self-care classes, personal growth, whatever it may be. All of those things are good in themselves. They're wonderful. But they're terrible substitutes for the Word of God. They can't substitute for it. If there's going to be a revival for a community, there needs to be a foundation in the Word of God. Now, continue on in verse 2. So Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly, both men and women and all who could understand what they heard, on the first day of the seventh month. And he read from it, facing the square before the water gate from early morning until midday. Don't worry, we're, we're not doing that this morning. Just half hour. In the presence of the men and the women and those who could understand, and the ears of all the people were attentive to the book of the law. And Ezra the scribe stood on a wooden platform that they had made for the purpose, and beside him stood... All those people. And Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people, for he was above all the people. And as he opened it, all the people stood. And Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God, and all the people answered, Amen, Amen, lifting up their hands, and they bowed their heads and worshiped the Lord with their faces to the ground. Also, the, the rest of these people, the Levites, helped the people to understand the law while the people remained in their places. Now, um, all those names, just a clue for you when you're not you don't know how to pronounce a name, you just say it really fast. And then, it, and then it goes, or you just say all these people, and then it's fine. So early morning to midday, right? They're, he's just reading the word early morning to midday. They were there at the square hearing, learning 
the word of God, and Ezra stood on this wooden platform, a stage essentially that was made of this wood for this purpose, and 13 people took turns reading the word of the Lord because, you know, his throat got kind of dry after reading from morning to midday. So they're taking turns reading. And between the readings, these Levites, the second group of people in those names in verse 7, they would go around in the square helping people to understand what was being read. That's what's happening here. So what we have here in our context are elders and leaders of the church assisting people in their understanding of the scriptures because there's no way for whoever is speaking from this platform to help everything be understood, help everyone understand everything from the word of God. And so in our church context, we need things such as small groups and elders and ministry leaders to help people understand the word of God. In a community, the more mature believers need to reach out to the folks who have not had the same amount of time to understand those scriptures. You, you invest into those who are younger in the faith. And in the office of the elder, the elder needs to be able to teach according to 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 2. And then you go to Titus verse, uh, chapter 1, verse 9, and it reads this. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. That's what the people needed in Nehemiah chapter 8. That's what the church community needs from its elders, pastors, and ministry leaders. We need the Word of God, not simply our opinions. To gather in expectation to hear directly from God. And whoever is speaking from this platform is not to be the person to be elevated. It is to be the Word of God that is to be elevated. And people will come and go from this platform but the Word of God will always remain. That's one of the things that I actually really love about liturgy. Liturgy, when it's properly observed, can be a great way to connect with God. One thing about liturgy is the, the beautiful symbolism that it represents. And so you take this simple pulpit as an example. This pulpit. Now in years past, this pulpit was put squarely in the platform as a proclamation for the Word of God, as the core of the worship gathering. And in our church, we have this 800-pound like, pulpit that takes like six guys to lift. Um, and, and we moved it. And now it's, I have a smaller pulpit, but I miss that 800-pound pulpit. Like, I, 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 I like that we gave such prominence to the Word of God to rest on this solid piece of wood. And the reason why we moved it is just like many other things that people ruined why it was designed. So people began interpreting like this pulpit as a place that divided the speaker from the people instead of a place where we hold prominent the word, that that's where it's placed. And so we, we focused it on the people. And because of what we've learned about communications, having a large piece of wood between a speaker and the people is obstructive. So then pulpits get smaller, and then they start being made out of plastic so you can see through them, or you use a music stand, or you use a table, or whatever it may be, so that your communication can be more free. I understand that. What I don't like about it is the liturgical symbolism lost in simply just holding the Word of God, and that's what the pulpit was there for. It wasn't for the speaker. 
It was for the Word of God. And so it's things like this that change all the time with the church, whether it be a communion table or vestments like liturgical robes, because uh, I, I would really like to wear my liturgical robes, but you know, or, or stained glass, um, or designs of the church like pews, or whatever else it may be, and, and I get it. But something that we can never lose is the Word of God at the center. The way things look isn't as big of a deal, but we can't lose the Word of God as, as the center, which is one of the things that the modern church is doing when we focus on other things like social justice or even community, what this theme is, or whatever our liturgy is today that pulls us from the Word of God, pulls that focus away. And Look, if we really, really focus on the Word of God, that social justice piece, that community piece, the parenting piece, marriage, relationships, life coaching, all those different things that we value, they all come into focus because the Bible makes all those things clear and we can see it. Back to Nehemiah. The people gather at the square, their communities gather, they're expecting to hear from God. Do we expect to hear from God? Really? Are we expecting? Because if you have those expectations, how will the, you then respond if you do hear from God? Now look back to verse 6. And Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God, and all the people answered, Amen! Amen! Lifting up their hands, they bowed their heads and worshipped the Lord with their faces to the ground. The people answered, Amen, which is meaning they confirm, they affirm, they reaffirm the words of another. And it's essentially saying, so be it. I've shared at um, several black churches. They know how this is done. Right? They, they know how this is done. And, and I never knew that I can get that excited and sweat that much. And, you know, I always wondered, like, why do they have the thing? And, and then when I preach at a black church, I get it because they get you hyped up. And you're like, yeah, and you start moving. And you just like, and I, and I, and I look back at myself like, what happened to you? Like, I look at my, because I'm not. I'm a reserved introvert Asian man. Like, I don't do that. So Asian, Asian churches, uh, white churches, not so much. We, we don't. We don't do these things. We're, we're a little bit more proper. We just speak. We don't need sweat pads or whatever it is. They lifted their hands. And again, um, we, we don't do that. But at the black church, it's, woo! Right? It's just, it's, that's, That's just what happens there. But this is the, the weird thing, is that um, you go to a warrior game. It's like a black church. That's, that's how it is, right? And there are hundreds of thousands of people affirming, reaffirming, confirming the warriors. Uh, have faith, have hope. It's not over yet. Can you just... Yeah, so. And every time they score, there's so, such excitement. And then they're just holding the threes and they're just doing all this stuff and shouting defense. And essentially what they're saying is, amen. That's what they're saying. And so all the high fives after a defensive stop, all the, all the fist bumps, the, the waves, and essentially the, the lifting of hands. 
right? The, the lifting of hands. And so you, we already do this. We see this already. We see the excitement and the enthusiasm, the, the passion and the posture for, for what we see as good. Why isn't this in the church if he is indeed speaking directly to us? I mean, isn't that pretty awesome? The creator, God of the universe, speaks to you, and we're more excited about a basketball going through a net than the creator God who is saying, forever you live with me. Everything I have is yours. Ah, like, come on, right? Like, come on. And they bowed their heads and they worshiped. And, and Warrior Fan does this too. They do this too. Steph sinks a three, and he's like unstoppable. And what do they start doing? You, you, right? You see that, that. It's in the highlight reel, and then there's like, oh, they show the people going like this. People get so worshipful about a game. And yet every time Steph sinks a three, what does he do? He does the sign. Like, he knows. He knows. He's pointing everybody in the same direction as who we all worshipped this morning. If people really want to get a glimpse of reality and the church in its glory, it's really hard to see it here in the United States. We just have so many distractions. We have all the technology and the lights and the music and the stage and the videos and the celebrity pastor worship and worship leaders. We have all this stuff. It makes it really, really hard to get a clear glimpse of God. And the, the closest that I've ever gotten to this is actually at a Burmese refugee camp in Thailand. Um, it's right across the Myanmar border. Uh, the Karin people uh, is who I was working with there, and there's actually a Karin refugee church that meets at Regeneration now, and it's just a, a beautiful, beautiful thing. But um, being in that village that was then bombed uh, two, two weeks after I was there, but having a worship experience there so powerful, those powerful amens and the authentic lifting of their hands and the genuine bowing of their heads and the passionate worship of the Lord. And it was just this open-air building with just these wood studs and then corrugated uh, metal as a roof, and it's just raining, and you can hear the pitter-patter there. And then the pulpit was in the center of the room, front and center, on a wooden stage with a Bible on top of it, and that was all. Dirt floor. No chairs, dirt floor, corrugated tin roof, and wood studs and they worship the Lord faces to the ground just an honest sincere posture during worship so telling of their relationship with God and how beautiful it is to see people come to the realization of the greatness of God as a community and worship him together verse 8 they read from the book from the law of God clearly, and they gave the sense so that the people understood the reading, and Nehemiah, who was the governor, and Ezra, the priest and scribe, and the Levites, who taught the people, said to all the people, this day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep, for all the people wept as they heard the words of the law. So as a community, they gathered together, they listened to the word of God, responded with amen, lifted up their hands, bowed their heads, worshiped God with their faces to the ground, and then lastly, they wept. Why? 
the word of God helped that community see what wasn't right with their relationship with God. It helped them see that. And so they were remorseful over that. They were sorrowful over that. Now, there's a huge difference between guilt and shame versus remorse and sorrow. Now, if you haven't noticed already, I, I am Asian. I am. And so the reason why I bring this up is because we know a little something-something about guilt and shame in our culture, don't we? we? We know this very well. I grew up in a Chinese church, and anyone who grew up in an Asian church you know honor shame culture very well. Amen? There's only like three of you that know this, really? I have an assumption to make that I don't have to go into detail what guilt shame culture is in our churches because we know. And, and even from that, we can all just kind of lift our hands, bow our heads, worship the Lord, and weep, right? We can weep over this because... Um, Trying to figure out that tension between a Chinese church, first generation American, to then Asian American, me, and then figuring out Western and Eastern culture, and then trying to figure out how am I fitting into this. And so the challenge for a, a, an Eastern mind frame in a Western culture is to then embrace that honor, shame, culture, while at the same time challenging it. Learning to embrace it while critiquing it. Because it's a very powerful element within our culture. But then within that culture, there also comes an accountability to know that the grace of God is sufficient even in that culture. So the guilt and shame theology that many of us, I think, are familiar with sometimes wants something from you. And then when it's not received, then it's responded to with anger or backlash that you're not delivering on something. And so the message of the guilt and the shame is then a way to get you to change your mind or to modify your behavior to change your actions. But then here's the problem with guilt. You feel guilty when you actually aren't even guilty. You feel guilty when you're not and that's crazy that you still feel guilt. Now, what is guilt? Guilt, it's a state of having done something wrong. So, for example, um, he's guilty of cheating on his taxes. And it's also a feeling, though. So, a feeling of this self-reproach that it's caused from the belief that you have done something wrong. So, for example, he feels guilty for not going home on Father's Day, which is coming up, by the way. So, feel guilty if you don't go home. But the Bible, I'm just being Asian right now, but the Bible refers to this guilt as a state, not a feeling. The Bible gives us a state of guilt. So, for example, Ezekiel chapter 22, verse 4. You have become guilty by the blood that you have shed. So it's a state of guilt. Romans chapter two, 3, verse 23 describes us. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So we are guilty for breaking the law, we have missed the mark of righteousness, and we need God's solution to free us from that state, Jesus Christ. Now, there's a difference between the state of the guilt we have and that of the feelings of guilt that we may or may not have. 
We are all guilty by the state of our sin, but that feeling of guilt, I would challenge, is not from God. That's our conscience. That is a condemnation coming from elsewhere, whether that's a voice from whoever, mom, dad, or whatever that may be, telling us you're bad. Feelings of guilt, they're, they're really p- painful, and, and they result in the condemnation of oneself. And, and shame is also a painful feeling. It, if, if one of us having, uh, having the loss of respect of others because of our actions or inactions, so, so shame is a state, and it's also a feeling as well. It's both. It's a sense of being bad, a state of internal condemnation. So what's the difference between guilt and shame? Guilt is our self-condemnation of what we do. And shame shames us for who we are. So as an example, I feel guilty for yelling at my kids. It's an action. I feel shame for being a bad parent. What is happening is that my conscience monitors what is good and what is bad. And so when my conscience approves, then I feel good. But when it doesn't, then I feel guilt and I feel shame. So in essence, my conscience is being deified and it is dependent on what's happening around me, which is a problem because my conscience is not God. So as Christians... We are to be free from feeling guilt-ridden, from having a shameful conscience, which is a sinful part of us, that our consciences are sinful. And so, yes, they change, and as we mature, we, we learn to trust it more, but it's not, a, it's not perfect. And what the guilt and the shame do is it focuses on the badness, the worthlessness, the deserved punishment but the funny thing is, is that it is actually community-minded, right? That, that guilt, shame, honor, shame culture, it is actually community-minded. How? Because ultimately the thought is that what we do impacts someone in the entire community. This is um, interesting to me because I saw the dynamic work here. So at my church, 9 o'clock, we start. 10.30 is the next service. It is timely. Like we, we, it's clockwork. It's very Western. And at the back of the room, it was like 1032, something like that. And Andrew comes up to me and he was like, hey, so we're going to wait a little while until the people get here. And I was like, that, that's variation. Because the emphasis is not on the timeliness. The emphasis is on the community. We value the people. So if the people aren't here, we don't start. So we wait for the people. And so it started a few minutes later. So it's a totally different value. Now, I'm not placing a judgment on a more Eastern or Western approach to honor shame that one is better than the other. I'm not doing that at all. What I do want to point us to is how we live a redeemed life in Jesus. And it can be in both cultures. How our lives can be life-giving, and part of this life-giving life is living a vulnerable life a life where remorse and sorrow is freely lived out. Take a look at 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 9 through 11. As it is, I rejoice, 
not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting, for you felt a godly grief, and essentially remorse and sorrow, so that you suffered no loss through us. For godly grief, remorse, sorrow, produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief, guilt and shame, produces death. For see that earnestness, this godly grief, the remorse and sorrow, has produced in you, but also what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what punishment. See, there's a difference between remorse and sorrow and guilt and shame. Remorse is empathetic. It is centered on reconciliation, which is practiced in community. And we feel awful because of the pain we've brought to someone else, the community. That pain leads us to then seek reconciliation, seek restoration. And guilt doesn't do this. Guilt seeks to often justify or, or move on without repairing because it focuses on how bad we are. That it's often self-centered. It neglects community because it's hidden from the community. It doesn't want to show itself. And so if the focus is how bad you are, that's guilt. But if your response is about loving your neighbor as yourself, that's, that's community. That's remorse. That is sorrow. Do we weep? Not out of guilt and shame, but out of remorse, out of feeling sorrow. Not because of how bad we are, but because of our love for our neighbors, our community, the love of ourselves. And that's what's happening here in Nehemiah 8. They don't leave this square guilt-ridden, shame-ridden. They leave joyful because the restoration, the reconciliation with God is good. The repentance was good. They had remorse, they had sorrow, and that was all done in community. Verses 10 and 11. Then he said to them, Go your way, eat the fat and drink sweet wine, and send portions to anyone who has nothing ready, for this day is holy to our Lord, and do not be grieved, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. So the Levites calmed all the people, saying, Be quiet, for this day is holy, do not be grieved. And all the people went their way to eat and drink and to send portions and to make great rejoicing because they all had understood the words that were declared to them. Eat and drink, send portions to anyone who has nothing ready. When it comes to hospitality and having a meal together, I think you guys know how to do this. I, I'm pretty sure. Because it's just, it's just in our DNA, it's in our culture um, I know just speaking for myself uh, as a Chinese-American, how, how do we greet each other? Do you say hello? Y you don't, right? You say, have you eaten yet? That, that's what we say. Have you eaten yet? It's not hello, how are you doing? Or it's, it's have you eaten yet? So even in how Asian cultures eat, when we order from the menu, do we just order our own dish of noodles or rice or, or some dish? Do we order just for us and then we just have our own thing? We, we don't do that. We order for the community. It's, it's the table. And this is one of the things that um, my wife had to deal with because my wife is um, not Asian. She's, she's, she's a Western gal. So when we order 
we order, my family orders, my, my sister and my parents and everything, I had to warn her when, we, when they were first meeting each other that um, when you order, you're not ordering your food. You're ordering our food. And she was like, what? I was like, you're, you'll get it. So we go for hamburgers. <laughs> got a hamburger, she orders a hamburger. I have a sister order salad and order soup and whatever. She gets her hamburger, gets it in front of her plate, and what happens? My mom pulls the plate over, cuts it <laughs> into however many pieces as the people around the table. And the salad is scoop for you, scoop for you, scoop. And the soup is like, can we have bowls? And the people are like, what? Yeah, can we have bowls? And share. And it's the same thing with like a steak. You order a steak, it's supposed to be for you, Western culture. Nah. You cut it in slices, everyone gets a piece. You get the chicken, it cuts in slices, everyone gets a piece. And so it was just hard for her to even think about this. And it's the same thing with just imagine how we drink. We don't get individual drinks. You get a teapot, and there's teacups, and everyone gets from the teapot. You don't get your own soda. You get a two-liter at the banquets, right? The, the banquets, you they put two-liter at the reception hall. Everyone shares it. Like, you don't get your own individual thing. And even if you do, share with your sister. Share with your brother. Share with your cousins. Like, it, you, you never get your own thing. That's just, that's just how we are. Everything's shared. It's community. So I, I think we, we, we understand this. We, we, we get this, that we're a family. We're a community. This is how life is done for us. We just share everything. Now, here's the thing. It gets messy when you share things. The likelihood of you spilling food on your plate when it's directly in front of you is less. But then you have to share and it gets messy. And this is another thing that's really messy. So now there's a Western movement towards having a communal chopstick that's different colored, right? So it's a communal chopstick. But when it's family, there's no communal chopstick. So my wife is on this table and we're at dim sum. And you know, my mom's eating from her chopsticks. And then she grabs my wife's food and puts it on there and she looks at me like, are you serious? I'm gonna eat the food that she just put her chopsticks in her mouth and she grabbed my food and put it, and then I'm supposed to eat that. But yeah, eat it. Eat it. Just eat it. Don't ask questions. It's okay. Just eat it. But that's the messiness of it, right? When you're in family, things get messy. You, you, you share spit and, uh, and you spill food and you give people things that they don't want and they have to eat it. And the indication is like, if I finish my plate, that means I'm still hungry and I'm going to give you more when it's, no, that's not what it means. But then people that don't understand that keep doing that and then they eat like six plates of food. When they're like, why did I eat so much? Because you ate all your food on the plate. You should have just left something on there, then they wouldn't give you more. But they don't understand these things. And so it gets messy. Sometimes feelings get hurt. Sometimes there's misconceptions. It's so important during those times to practice humility, to be reminded that God loves you, that God lo loves everyone involved in that community, even during a conflict, even during a disagreement, even dur during challenges, 
that you are not to live a guilt, shame-ridden life, that we are to move into the practice of being remorseful and sorrowful and, and grieving the things that are hurtful, that then lead us to reconciliation and restoration as a community, not individual off doing your own thing, that we come together even in the tough things, that you deal with that. Romans chapter 8, verse 1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So there's, there's no need for us to condemn one another as a community of Christ. There, there's, there's no space for that. The, the world is tough enough without it. And so when you encounter God, may you encounter his love, his grace, his kindness. And let me part with you with these wonderful words from the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 2, verse 4. God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance. And that's for restoration, that's for reconciliation. Let's pray. God, we are so thankful for your word, just the simplicity of opening it and reading it through and imagining all the people that were taking turns with Ezra just to simply read the word, not even expositing or describing or anything else, but just simply reading it and then the rest of the Levites going out there and talking to people and having these discussions. And I, I do pray, God, that people hear directly from you, expectantly. May they experience those amens and the lifting of hands and the bowing of their heads and the worship and the weeping May they know that you are not there to condemn them, to have them feel less than shame, guilt, but that those things are to be in turn shared with you in vulnerability and humility to repent, express sorrow and remorse. And so I ask God for your blessing upon this community to live in such a way that in their differences, May your grace and mercy shine forth in Jesus' name. Amen.